we've hit the magic 108 number. That's great. So thank you all for joining. This is um, quite an enjoyable ongoing little thing that uh, I never thought would uh, sustain itself this long. So it's a delight. So uh, just a small few little housekeeping things for those of you who are members of the nightclub thing. I've got some um, pretty fun interview subjects, uh, guests coming up um, in a couple of weeks. Um, two filmmakers that reached out to me that are doing a really, really cool documentary on lucid dreaming um, and dream yoga. They were in Europe for a good chunk of time interviewing scientists and the like. And so um, their pitch deck and what they're doing is so compelling that I thought it would be a, a gas to spend some time with them. So in a, a little over a week, I'm going to be talking to them. And then also um, a, an anthropologist is on deck. Um, and then another scientist to talk a little bit more about the rigors of the scientific rigors behind um, the lucid dreaming dream yoga thing. And the really cool thing is they're all women, which is amazing um, because there tend to be, you know, so many white guys that uh, dominate this field that it's just a delight to expand and invite this kind of energy. So stay tuned for all of that. Um, <clears throat> I thought I would start today that I had a very interesting, and again, the way we do these, if you haven't done this before, is these are completely, utterly spontaneous and formal events. I, I literally, I prepare nothing, which is one reason I like these things. I just kind of show up. Um, but usually something comes in or just before I sit down, something will be seated that seems like it's worth talking a little bit about. And so I will do that for a few minutes. And then like we've done before, the real uh, you know, essence of what we're doing here is just hanging out together. Um, and so, as Andy was saying, the, the questions, the comments, the offerings, um, very often really compelling additional quotes or poems or whatever are also uh, offered. And so that's completely, utterly welcome. So most of what we're doing here is, is kind of Q&A and discussion. But I wanted to read a little bit of something that was sent to me about lucid dreaming that is definitely worth talking a little bit about. It's a good way to kind of seed our conversation for today. So this is what this person sends. So the idea of consciously going into a deeper realm of the mind made me a little fearful, felt that I wouldn't have any control. <clears throat> Yet I know that is something one has to let go of for exploration and learning. I just had an uneasy feeling about it all. I have bits of lucidity in my dreams now and then. I find them completely fascinating. Remember them at times, it seems to me. If one is going into a different moment of reality, it should happen naturally. And that's why I want to, to talk a little bit about it. It should happen naturally. Um, well, yes and no. And, and again, when we're talking about, and this is why the lucidity principle is really interesting to me. Um, I do have an obvious, tremendous fascination with lucid dreaming in, uh, in particular dream yoga per se. But really the power of uh, these nocturnal practices is really the exploration of mind itself, where we use the example of the dream as a way to explore the nature of mind and reality. And that's where the stuff really has traction for me. And so I wanted to just say a couple things about this that I think are definitely worth talking about that, that apply not just to dreams, but to, um, to meditation, spiritual path, the nature of lucidity altogether. And so remember lucidity, at least the way I work with it, is a code word for awareness. Um, a lucid dream is an aware dream. It's a dream where you're aware. 
and so you know awareness is a monumental topic in the psycho psychological and spiritual arenas right i mean if there's one fundamental curative agent ingredient it's awareness it's the uh, antidote to ignorance the suffering to everything and so by working with cultivation of lucidity in the nocturnal dream we're fundamentally exercising the awareness faculty altogether but what's interesting here two things <clears throat> this kind of assumption that this should happen naturally well this is really interesting because what it points to are the two ways to work with lucid dreams um, altogether and this all again think code word think the path and that one is that the more relative approach is that if you if you want to wake up during the day um, and become enlightened or if you want to wake up at night and become lucid to your dreams you can do so through these relative means all the practices all the methods all the techniques all the gadgets all the supplements this is the more conventional traditional relative mode that really is the path of effort and it works it totally works that's the one that's usually touted that's the one that's usually riffed on but the other one is the lesser known approach um, towards lucidity altogether and especially in terms of lucid dreaming this may seem a somewhat outrageous statement but believe it or not the more absolute approach to lucid dreams and and therefore really lucidity altogether is that lucid dreams are actually the natural state that the lucid dream is if the mind is just completely left alone and that's the key how do we leave it alone properly and this is where it dives into this um, question comment that this should happen naturally well on one level yes it should happen naturally but it doesn't seem to work that way but the really the foundational thing here is that that lucid dreams according to the inner reading of the wisdom traditions are actually the natural type of dream um, and th this is the more uh, this is the path of effortlessness this is the fruitional path where just like in, in your daytime practices, exactly the same. We have all these relative meditations. We have all these incredibly complex teachings, all this amazing stuff that absolutely positively works. But a more absolute level, either day or night, is really just open and relax. Just simply relax. Um, and then the natural state of mind is, is essentially gradually revealed. Um, actually, sometimes suddenly when you kind of flash open. And so this is really somewhat important to understand because then from a more spiritual perspective you really don't you don't have to do anything um in fact you do nothing but the kick is you have to do it well you have to do nothing well and that's not so easy that's why this doesn't just happen naturally because we haven't been trained you know like i often say we're not human beings we're human doings always involved in activity always being propelled by habitual impulses. And so when we're asked um, to simply just relax, open and be, for human doings, that's not such an easy doing because it's an undoing, it's a not doing. And so that's why this more absolute approach um, isn't, you know, even though on one level, it's the uh, simplest thing in the world to do. But simple doesn't always mean easy. And for, for it's exactly this reason that we're just, we're not hardwired to just open and relax and so when this person says that you know it should just happen naturally yes theoretically true just like you should naturally be resting in the state of your of the buddha mind i mean same thing 
but it just doesn't seem to work that way, right? And a lot of teachers have touted this. I mean, I, you know, Suzuki Roshi, Tungpramaje, many other masters when they came to the, to the West had this kind of, you know, Nike approach, just do it. And, you know, it, it didn't really pan out all that well for exactly these reasons. Um, and so, therefore, we need to understand the many forces of the dark side, the many forces of habituation, um, indoctrination, inculcation, that basically keep us running away from this natural state of openness. Um, so, yes, it would be great if we could have the capacity to simply open, relax, and then lucidity is a natural consequence of that day or night. But we just have so much karma, so much habit, so much momentum behind us that this simplest thing in the world to do is not so simple. And therefore, we have you know, all these really elegant um, practices of openness and relaxation where fundamentally we can uh, get to the point where we do relax to that extent. And so my approach to these practices is double-barreled you know, both with the uh, daytime meditations and nighttime practices is why not use both? Why not use the relative means, all the tips, tricks, gadgets that really do work. And then at the same time, conjoin that with the more absolute approach that fundamentally irreducibly, you simply just have to open and lucidity is a consequence of that. But as I mentioned so many times and it wor it's worth mentioning so many more times, it's too simple. It's too simple, we, we don't believe it. It's too easy, we don't trust it. And so, um, you know, fundamentally we look elsewhere. You know, we strive for other things. And so the other, the other aspect here that I thought was interesting with this kind of question comment that came in was this idea, the idea of consciously going into a deeper realm of the mind made me a little fearful. Well, I mean, spot on, right? I mean, that's, that's a, a very honest revelatory statement that um, part of the reason we're human doings <laughs> is that uh, all this uh, active laziness, this relentless activity continues to serve as a very sophisticated distraction strategy, a very sophisticated avoidance strategy um, that really keeps us from a host of fears um, that are central to the relative sense of self, not the absolute sense. And this is super important because the absolute level, level of being, absolutely nothing whatever to fear at all. In fact, just a tremendous amount to look forward to. But above that kind of groundless ground, um, that state of awakening that we fundamentally re reach only through relaxation, above that are these series of contractions um, really born out of fear. And so when a person like this really makes this kind of honest recognition that there was a sense of anxiety in terms of making these deep explorations, I think that's actually spot on because from a relative point of view, you're starting to look underneath the hood of the ego. Um, and as I often mention, you know, the closer you get to truth, the closer you get to egolessness, to emptiness, then the more these defensive strategies come out in full force. And so fundamentally, it's, it's kind of trickles all the way up to anxiety, to uncertainty, to um, what Trungpa Mishay talked about is poverty mentality. I can't do this stuff, whether it's lucid dreaming or the path. Um, it's too sophisticated. It's beyond me. I don't have time, blah, blah, blah. Those are more surface levels of distraction and deterrence. But you know, once you start to see through those, cut through those, and go deeper, 
you're just going to have layer upon layer of contraction, all born from layer upon layer of fear. Fear fundamentally of death, um, fear of, of the harsh noble truth that uh, you actually don't exist the way you think you do right here and right now. And so this is incredibly helpful to understand. And this is why the spiritual traditions are warrior traditions. It takes some courage, it takes an intrepid attitude to basically boycott all this active laziness, to um, kind of interrupt the avoidance strategies and therefore allow one to rest with these gradations of disquietude and anxiety and eventually fear that are all sublimating and percolating against the whole um, entirety of our so-called conscious lives, which are really driven, truly, truly driven by these vast unconscious avoidance strategies. Um, because fundamentally, the ego has this deep intuition that um, it's starting to unearth its falsity. It's starting to see through its machinations and fundamentally revealing that it, it's not there. You know, there's no such thing as ego. And, and so this, this intuition then serves to fester underneath and we do everything we possibly can in um, overt and covert ways to fundamentally avoid this truth, um, this truth of non-existence. And, and so understanding this can be incredibly helpful on the path. And I talk a lot about this when I talk specifically about anxiety and fear, because when you enter the spiritual arenas, in a very real way, you're asking for it. You're asking to look below the hood, to, to um, check things out, investigate much more deeply, and realize that this thing that we think we are is, is fundamentally utterly illusory. And so I just wanted to start with that because these are two kind of archetypal questions. One, you know, kind of the natural state of both mind and dream and awareness is in fact one of lucidity. That is in fact the natural state. That's one of the outrageous proclamations of the non-theistic um, so-called Eastern traditions. So that's one really important point. Uh, we can bat that around if you like. And then the second one is the fear that tends to um, obstruct, distract from, in fact, that profound state of openness and relaxation. And so both these tenets can become really helpful because the deeper you go, and again, this is not inherently, it doesn't have to be this way. Um, and this is also really worth throwing into the mix because when one actually touches into the vast, open, relaxed nature of the mind, the empty, egoless dimensions of our being, if that experience is left alone, it's absolutely ecstatic. I mean, it's just, it's just the great bliss. But what happens with this, and maybe some of you already had this experience, is you have such a glimpse and yam, and when you're in it, in fact, when you're in it, there's, there's no such appellation, there's no such labeling. All these are retro-fitted retro, um, um, kind of terms, because when you're in it, there's, there's no you, there's no other, there's, there's no thing, nothing. But at the same time, there's this ineffable everyness, everything. And so, what happens is um, the habitual patterns, all the doing hasn't been exhausted. All the karma hasn't been exhausted. And so sooner or later, what happens after we have these experiences, and again, this could be a few seconds, this could be a few minutes, this could be an hour after you have these kind of breakthrough experiences into the true nature, which again, they're always already present. I mean, this is something that's the, the, the legacy, the utterly available to all of us right now. 
and I, I mean like right now. But because we haven't exhausted these doings, these karmic propensities, these habitual tendencies, then sooner or later, something like, hey, wait a second, where do I fit into this comes into play. And the minute that happens, there's, there's fear and contraction simultaneously because there's no place for personal identity in this space. Ego, ego like Trung Rinpoche said so brilliantly, you can't attend your own funeral. Ego cannot attend egolessness. And so if you're resting in that space without manipulation, without proliferation, without construction, it's ecstatic, it's divine, it's the nature of things. But because of these habits not being exhausted, some part of that will come into play and say, wait a second, where do I fit in? And then you realize you don't fit in. And that's where the fear starts. And so immediately, maybe you've had this experience. I remember it extremely well the first time I had it, this, this uh, really sense of panic. You know, I was hanging out. I just kind of dropped serendipitously into this open space. Not that hard to do, really. I'm sure many of you have had it. And um, all of a sudden, you know, this just, just kind of panic came over me. My heart started to race. I thought, you know, I thought, oh, I'm going to lose my mind. I'm going crazy. And that already was the ego trying to appropriate, trying to um, relate to its own funeral, so to speak, which you can't do. And then born from that is, again, you, if you touch into it, it's really revelatory, is this rocket propulsion away from that space. Um, basically, the jet fuel is ignorance and fear. You just get, get the F out of here, and then you come back to some sense of so-called normalcy, some sense of form, ego, habituation, and the like, and you go, whew, man, that was close. What the heck was that? <laughs> and so the more you understand that, the more you'll actually start to realize that um, those are really, really good markers. You know, and I, again, I talk so much about this because it's so bloody important. When you actually have these experiences and you notice the fear that is instantaneously um, uh, brought to bear when ego steps back in to either understand it, appropriate it, or even reject it, everything that you do, basically, literally, everything that you do in your so-called conscious life is basically a subset of this type of avoidance strategy. And I mean everything. And this is why I, I'm saying more and more, and I'm sure many of you already know this, fundamentally, everything reduces to these foundational spiritual principles. Everything is in essence a spiritual issue. It, everything reduces to these foundational spiritual tenets. And therefore, in my opinion, and I'm sure many of you already have had this experience, if you're not engaged in some type of deep inner work, spiritual work and the like, everything else is just a substitute. Everything else is either shadow boxing, shadow hugging, or living in the world of shadows like Plato in the allegory of the cave, you know, where we're chained looking against this wall, thinking that the shadows from the light behind us constitute what reality actually is. And this is what it means to be archetypally asleep. This is what it means to be non-lucid in the very deepest sense. So I just wanted to throw those out. Those are some spontaneous thoughts that just came to me to kind of seed our conversation for today. Um, so anything along these lines as a platform? Um, I know, I think Andy, you, already have, you also have a couple of the questions. Is that right? That you yeah. want to start with? So because people do ask questions that are in different time zones and they can't show up, I do want to honor by starting um, with a couple of the written in questions. And then like usual, we'll open it up for contributions, discussion questions and the like from your end. So fire away. Great. Can you speak to guides or teachers in dreams? Uh, like 
can I speak about what they are or can I speak to them when they arise in my <laughs> I, I suspect it means can I speak to the principle of, of um, agencies or, or what the like entering into our dream state? That's the way I'm reading that question anyway. Yeah, in my worldview, there's absolutely room for this type of um, so-called external influence. And so this question would be answered differently depending on who you ask it to. So if you were to ask obviously a more scientific oriented or type reductionist materialist person, they would say that that basically what happens in the entirety of the dream is solipsistic. Remember, that's a term that's used a lot. Solipsism is fundamentally ultimate self-ism. Literally, that's the etymological root. And what it means here is that everything that arises from this view in the mind is utterly just your projection, your display. It's just your mind. That's solipsism. Idealistic solipsism, sometimes they call it. Um, in the more fluid, open, kind of alternative interpretations of the dream state, um, and this is where I'm, I'm kind of a subscriber to these more open views, because I've had these experiences myself, where for sure, and even Carl Jung talked about it in a certain sense when he was talking about his dream guide, Philemon, where these, these so-called external influences can in fact um, permeate your dreams. Um, and if you read the literature, the dream literature, it's replete with these types of um, stories, testimonials, and the like, where, where people will say, Avalokiteshvara came to me last night, Padmasambhava came to me last night, Trungpa came to me last night. And so I have to slow, throw this into the sidebar um, just to show you the nuances of this type of discussion. There's two ways to even relate to that. Um, and this is, I think, a, a warranted insertion because on one level, you could argue non-dualistically that what's actually ever appearing, whether it's a god or, or whatever, one of these um, forces, one could actually argue that that's just a, 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 a representation of the Padmasambhava within you, the Karmapa within you, the Avalokiteshvara within you, that's actually arising in that seemingly external form simply as a way to communicate. And so, you know, many of us may wrestle with the seeming irreconcilability of these two types of stances, but I, I'm actually more agnostic. And, and I love what my friend Elizabeth Namgyal, who I'm also trying to get to interview on the site, by the way, is the power of the open question. That on one level, depending on the bandwidth of reasoning I bring to it, um, I would say that, yeah, that's probably these gods, whatever, that I'm experiencing the dream. They could very well just be representations of, of, of my own divinity, the deeper strata of my own awakened being manifesting in this form as a way to communicate with this more superficial dimension. On another level, I think it's also just as viable to say that, you know, because, because really um, there's this beautiful line from two dream researchers, Robert Ogilvie and Harry Hunt, where they say, really wonderful line where they say, the farther down the rabbit hole you go, the more collective the experience becomes. I mean, that's, that's really beautiful. The farther down the rabbit hole you go, the more collective and open the experience becomes. Carl Jung, of course, talked about this in a more relativistic way with his idea of the collective unconscious. But the idea here with the kind of the collectivity of the super unconscious mind is that, hey, I mean, why not? Why can't we open our minds and hearts in our dreams to the extent where in fact a Trungpa Rinpoche or a Karmapa or the Buddha, whatever that is, so that's a very interesting philosophical question, 
can somehow infiltrate my mind and present themselves to me in that fashion. And so I'm okay with that kind of ambiguity. I'm okay with that seeming irreconcilability because to me there's elegance to, to both those kind of approaches to answering that really um, cool question. So somewhere in there. Great. Um, <clears throat> I did your fantastic Shambhala course and wonder if more could be said about Shenhua referring to industrial mind. Yeah, Shen Wang, Shen Wang, S-H-E-N-W-A-N-G, Shen Wang. Yeah, uh, okay, so I'll talk a little bit about this. This is, the, this is a, an important term for me. Uh, Shen Wang is, is Tibetan. Tibetan, by the way, is a bisyllabic language. If you ever noticed, every, you know, every, every word is, is two syllables, right? So Shen Wang, I mean, it's just like sidebar. So Shen Wang literally means other power. And what it refers to here, it has a number of applications. The way I relate to it, and the way I riffed on it in this course, and if you didn't take it, um, I'll just flesh that out right now, is that what we do in a really, this is part of the, the, the avoidance strategy, in a really interesting way, using processes of repression and projection. And by the way, this is one of the terrific contributions of Western psychological thought, even good old Freud, I have to throw this into the mix. Um, you know, despite his kind of negative theories of mind and, and his psychopathology, one of the, I would say arguably the greatest contribution of Freud was his work on repression and therefore its relationship to the, the expression and, and construction of the unconscious mind. Super important contribution that the East doesn't have, at least I haven't de detect, uh, detected, as compelling an analog. Um, but which, the way Shenhuan works with, uh, conjoined with the ideas of repression and projection, is that what we unwittingly do that is so fascinating is we confer upon a reality that is fluid, malleable, porous, empty, dreamlike. That's the nature of this. We confer upon this fluidity and openness uh, a status, an ontological status that it does not inherently have. Um, and so what I often say is we are the ones that transform a fluid dreamlike world. We're the ones that transform it into concrete and steel. And then we, then we complain about why the world is so hard. Well, the world isn't hard, we are, we are. And so what we do in an incredibly interesting way is we project, we infer, we confer. It's like, if you, for those of you who are students of Tibetan Buddhism and Tibetan culture, this is, um, this is what I playfully talk about as a samsaric abhisheka. Abhishekas are empowerment ceremonies, like the big Kala Chakra, Abhisheka, the big, I mean, they're everywhere. And they're really beautiful ceremonies that are designed to reveal the innate power within us. But what we do we confer this kind of samsaric, this confused Abhishek upon the phenomenal world all the time. We don't even know we're doing it. And so what we do is we therefore, we imbue, we freeze, we solidify, we reify. That's, that, that's the $50,000 word. We reify, we make real that which is not real. So that's the other power. We confer a power, we imbue a power onto other people, onto the phenomenal world, onto this dreamlike reality, a power it does not inherently have. And then that power, of course, that's, that's part of the uh, projection thing. Then that power does what? Anything you project, you're throwing a boomerang. Then that power comes back to have power over you. 
And so it's this, this incredibly sophisticated, perverse, unconscious strategy that we take place in all the time that creates unwittingly, unconsciously, the dramas, the struggles, the, the, everything we do really in, in, the, in the vast entirety of our lives to avoid some very harsh, uncomfortable, noble truths, like the ones I mentioned earlier, that you don't, you don't exist. If that's not an uncomfortable truth, I don't know what is. So we confer, we, we shen wang um, onto the world of power it doesn't have, and then that power comes back to act on us. And so um, one last thing around this is I often say, conjoin this riff with uh, uh, a small thing on the, the Sanskrit word siddhi, S-I-D-D-H-I, which refers to like psychic power. And psychic power comes in two forms, relative psychic power, relative city is clairvoyance, clairaudience, telekinesis, all these kind of super sorcerers type things, which have their place. Um, and this is when, you know, the world, when you have power over the world. Well, the most important type of Siddhi, S-I-D-D-H-I, is absolute Siddhi, much, much more important. And that's when the world no longer has power over you. Um, and that's when this kind of transfer of power back to its rightful source takes place. So that's what a real Abhisheka is. A real Abhisheka is taking away the power. This isn't in the overt contract of Abhishekas, but this is what's going on, as far as I can tell. Stripping away the unconscious power that we confer onto others into the world, and then conferring that power back to us. And here's one colloquial example, and then I'll let this go. Um, so let's say you, know, you meet somebody on the street, and, you know, they're kind of good looking. They're like, cool. And, you know, you walk past them and maybe, you know, maybe you work with them or something. And, and fundamentally, at, at an initial level, you know, unless they assault you physically, they have no power over you. But let's say you get involved with them, right? And here's the other really juicy thing. I mean, one of the reasons that romantic love is so sexy and juicy is because you're fundamentally on one level, you're falling in love with yourself. <laughs> You're plastering this poor mate with all your projections. And so what happens then is this person that initially had no power over you, well, guess what happens? You start to confer them with more and more power. You imbue them with more and more power, a power they don't have. And then eventually that power manifests in like, well, why didn't he return my text? Why didn't he answer the phone? Why isn't she responding to my email? And all of a sudden you get totally wigged out by this whole process. You know, you, you've conferred all this power, you've projected all this power onto this person. <laughs> and then they come back and, and in this really strangely perverse and really interesting way, they just ruin your life. But you know, then go back, recurse, go back and they go, hey, this person, when I first met them, they didn't have this power. I gave them that power when I, so to speak, fell in love with them. Um, and then all of a sudden that power then comes back to, to bite you in this sort of way. So that's just the briefest riff on this. If you want to know more about it, I think I talk about it pretty extensively in my book, Power and Pain. Um, I think I talk more about it in there. But Shen Wang is, in, in my opinion, super important to understand. So good one. Okay, maybe one more and then we can open it up. You have another written one, Andy? Sure. Um, this one just came in. Andrew, you mentioned Philemon as Jung's dream guide. As I understand it, he also, quote, manifested Philemon during conscious, active imagination 
how do you relate or not active imagination imagination as Jung defined it with dreaming and or lucid dreaming? Yeah, that's a great question. Again, I'm not I'm not a, a hardcore Jungian, so I can't answer this with complete authority. But if there are therapists out there who are Jungians and who can address this, um, please step in. So you know, active imagination was was one way that that Carl Jung worked with establishing connections to unconscious processes, at least that's my understanding. And it also has a very deep kind of corollary uh, relationship to visualization practices in the Tibetan um, arena. So um, I'm not sure how much I can go further in that with, uh, with real authority. And if there's someone out there who is a Jungian that can address this, I'd be happy to, to hear more about it. The way, I do have a reference for you, however, um, you can learn about this in, in fact, if you hold two seconds, I will get you the volume. Hold on, I got this book right here. miss me <laughs> so let me find this for you this 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 is a two volume set um, lucid dreaming new perspectives on consciousness and sleep it's not cheap I think it's like a hundred dollars a book but for the deep divers this is an indispensable anthology collected by my friend Ryan Hurd and Kelly Buckley I don't know Kelly personally but I, I know Ryan I've interviewed him he's a great guy and in this book, it's, let me see which volume. Oh, it must be this one. Volume one. In volume one. Yes. Lucid Surrender in Jung's Alchemical Conjunctio by Mary Zimmer. This is a really brilliant distillation of Carl Jung's work um, when it comes to things like lucid, uh, lucid dreaming. So if you really want to dive into this, that's the place to go. Um, but again, I'm not a Jungian. I know a little bit about his work, so um, I'd rather refer you to sources that can speak with some authority on this one. So, okay. All right. Yeah, now we can yeah. open it up. Great. Let's start with the hands raised from last week as well. Um, and first will be Keenan. Hey, Miguel, you grew a beard since I saw you. Yeah, it's just the quarantine is keep, it's getting longer. You're starting to look like Jesus Christ, man. Because <laughs> you are good. at heart, at heart, you're, you're Christ consciousness, right? There you go. So you're just radiating that. How are you, my friend? How can I help you? Uh, okay, so that's, that's great. Uh, yeah, th thank you for the beautiful seating. I guess I had a couple of questions. Okay. Um, so you say that about the naturalness of lucidity, which is that doing doing nothing is not easy, and uh, and then the relative means uh, that seem to work. So one of the questions that comes to me is, um, you know, oftentimes we hear about things are unfolding as they should, 
on the spiritual path. And um, I wanted to say that because you said um, that there is nothing personal about the path. You know, the moment you have the person uh, wanting to achieve something, that, that's a contraction, that's the fear. Yeah, you could say that. Yep. So oftentimes a message that I, I hear myself is things are just fine and I, uh, they're unfolding as they should. And even the relativeness is uh, somehow okay in that sense. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know if you had any thoughts. I don't have any conclusions. It's just... So that what, I, what I seem to be hearing is an implication here, Keenan, is that somehow how do you reconcile that with the three-ring shit show that's taking place in the world today? Is that kind of where you're going with this? or? Uh, well, th that's interesting that you say that. Yes, I was, I was talking more in sense of the individual's uh, spiritual path. Uh -huh. um, but also, when, when something that came to me when you were talking about this is that the empty space has room for everything. The, the good and the bad, the so-called good and the bad. So-called good and bad, correct. So-called good and bad. Whereas I, I seem to constantly make these opinions as this is one way or this is the other way, but empty space, even the space outside has space for all the objects in it. Um, it's easy to say, of course, it's, uh, it's right. hard to relax to that level. Right. So I guess ultimately about the relaxed level is can we also be relaxed to the relative as if yes um as if my life as this individual being with these relative um scenarios is also just perfect and that there is nothing wrong with it as well um but it all gets paradoxical because there is contraction yes. yeah and there is you know well it gets paradoxical and it actually gets a little bit complicated um but yeah i mean fundamentally what again i would just simply reinstate what you're saying is, is, is in fact the case. And this again, it's one of the really radical proclamations of the non-theistic traditions, in particular Buddhism, Advaita Vedanta, the non-dual schools, that and it completely, especially for Westerners, we may think we're not so influenced by our intellectual and religious traditions like the Abrahamic traditions and, and whatnot, but this is antithetical in spirit to the theistic traditions where their, their version of divinity and whatnot is, is elsewhere somewhere, their kind of projected version of heaven. And I, what I always throw in here, Keenan, is, is one of my favorite all-time cartoons. Um, it just kills me every time I think of it. You know, the, imagine there's this, again, no, no criticism, no dispersions here, but there's a, a, a kind of a Christian monk in big robes where, you know, having this big sign, big sign that says, you know, Christ is coming, Christ is coming. And then back right behind him is a little Buddhist monk holding a tiny little cue card that says, Buddha here now. That's fantastic. <laughs> Buddha here now. And so it's for, for, for us in the West, you know, this, this is somewhat revelatory of our enculturation. The radical proclamation is, in fact, that if you just leave things alone properly, and that's the key, this world is sacred. It's divine. It's perfectly pure. It's a pure land. I mean, this, we are in heaven. Even the Christian mystics, mystics say, right, in the Gnostic gospel, according to Thomas, the kingdom of heaven is spread out across the earth, but men do not see it. And so this is, this is um, the outrageous proclamation and also the experience of any deep divers on the meditative path. You know, you have these experiences. You start cutting, descending, letting go through all these contractions, all these construction projects, 
all these adventitious defilements, these secondary defilements, they start to drop away. And then eventually you land in this landless, so to speak, reality where this becomes your experience, where you just simply, this is, you realize, OMG, even though there isn't one, this really is the way it is. And then so therefore, what happens is, like I mentioned earlier, because we're not habituated to that, we're not familiar with it, literally the definition of meditation, our impetus, our habits come back into place and they kick us out of that space. But that's a pointing out transmission. That will show you who you really are. And once that light is revealed, in a certain way, you will never forget it. It's a little, the analogy that's given here is a good one, is, is imagine being in, a, in, a, um, in a, a big room, a dark, let's say, a ca uh, like an auditorium, pitch black. You lived your entire life in this pitch black room, and there's a bloody snake in this room. And so imagine what that would feel like. It's pitch black, and you know there's this mofo of a, of a python in there. I mean, imagine what your life would be like, right? Probably a little fear, a little trepidation, right? That's the way we live. And that's the darkness of ignorance. And then all of a sudden, somebody comes by, and this is this moment of opening, flash. Somebody comes by, flips on the lights in the arena, and all of a sudden you look over and, and that what you originally felt thought was, a, was this big python is just a rope. It's just a rope. Light goes back off, but everything completely changes, right? Because you've seen. The light, the, the stability isn't there, but you've cut through the BS. And what happens? The fear is now gone. Now the fear is gone. And so again, you know, that's, that's actually the process of the path. Houston Smith put it so beautifully. I love this line. The process of the path is to transform flashes of illumination into abiding light. And so more and more, that's the path. You flash more, you flash more. And eventually it's just constant. And so, you know, this may seem rhetoric or philosophical, rhetorical or philosophical, theoretical, only because we haven't experienced it yet. When we experience it, then we, then we know. It's like this really, this is the nature of reality. And so then what you do for us, let's be practical here. So what do you do with that? Well, now you have this internal transformed view that you will never forget. It may not be stable. That's why you still walk what's called the fourth path, path of familiarity or stability. But you come back into the relative world completely informed and transformed by this new vision. And then that, that is a total game changer because then you will act from this more adult perspective. You will actually see from this higher stance. And so even though it may not be stable, it perfumes your experience. You will never forget it. And it, it changes the way you relate to everything. And so therefore, eventually what will happen with increased stability, increased stability, eventually, of course, you know, the relative and absolute truth are seen to be inseparable. We, we see them as in fact indistinguishable because they fundamentally are. Um, so I'm not sure where you want me to go with this, but that's no, that, fine. That's perfect. And I, um, yeah, because I, I feel like at the, at the level of the, the dualistic mind, um, I, I understand at least that, um, it's not something that I'm supposed to grasp. You mean the dualistic mind? Yeah. Like it's, it's not something that I'm supposed to make sense of, but I, I, I resonate with what you were saying. That it, you know, well, you know, it's like I said, uh, I, I'm playing a lot of David Byrne these days. Stop making sense, my friend. <laughs> you know that great song? I love that song. And this guy was like a Siddha. He's one of these like silent Siddhas, right? Stop making nice. sense. Stop making sense. Um, because literally as a whole sidebar, we, we, we quite, we literally make sense of the world. 
Um, so in a very real way, yeah, stop making sense, stop grasping, open, relax. And then this proclamation becomes your experience. The, the map becomes your territory and you go, wow, total game changer. That's really where you wanna get on this life, by the way. Um, glimpse of the first boomy, technically speaking. That's where you wanna get on this life. Because when you die, in terms of the Bardo teachings, guess where you're going? You're going to just this experience. This is what's called the child luminosity. I mean, there's so many ways to talk about this. And so this has tremendous applicability in the Bardo teachings and when you die, because this is where you're going when you die. When all these contractions are kind of forcefully opened up, when karma is exhausted, the adventitious defilements fall away, everything subtracts, subtracts, subtracts away until what? Nothing, literally, nobody, nothingness, emptiness, that's when this becomes your you know, um, full direct experience. Without recognition, you're just gonna skip it and then recycle back in. With recognition, that's called enlightenment in one life. I mean, you know, you'll, you'll actually wake up at that moment. So, okay, my thank friend? You. Thank yeah. you, thank you. Here's yeah, and just, just a quick, quick oh, yeah, note. Sure. I'm, I'm all up for the, uh, for the opportunity um, for transcription. Oh, for sure. I'll get back to you on that. Yeah. Okay. We're, 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 we're trying to suss all that out because we had just a terrific response with that. So you're, you're, you're definitely right. on the docket, my friend. I appreciate it. Okay. That. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much. Hey, bro. See you, bud. See ya. And next up will be Jerry and Maureen. You have the audio. Thank you very much. Um, hi, Andrew. Hi. <laughs> um, for the last... Both of us are long, long time uh, practitioners, but in the Theravadan tradition. Okay, cool. Uh, but for the last two years, we've been studying basically with you and with Ken Wilber. And I'm honored to be associated <laughs> in the same sentence with my dear friend, Ken Wilber. That's great, thank well, you. It, and it, it's, it's interesting because it, it really didn't, it isn't something we sought out. It sort of all came to us. But um, this, it isn't really a question, but, but uh, going on from last week when you were talking about samskaras and the unconscious, right. uh, the role of the unconscious, what we enjoy about you is your ability to translate highly complicated uh, material into things that are easier to understand. And so really want to encourage you to bring, you, you reference um, integral theory from time to time. And I, we get from that that you understand it pretty deeply. I try. <laughs> yeah, so it's not a, it, it's a big subject. Um, but would love to see you put, uh, bring more of that into, uh, particularly in relation to the unconscious uh -huh. and the role that it's, that the various states and stages are playing in. Yeah. In, because it, it's a very, very valuable map. Well, I, th I couldn't agree more with you, which is why, you know, I, I subscribe to that model because it just has so much explanatory power. Um, and Ken has done, you know, he's done an amazing um, job bringing together, you know, he's one of these incredible syncretic 
type thinkers that has an Aristotelian type of mind, Hegelian type of mind that can just cast its net over all these disparate, um, seemingly reconcilable disciplines and, and, and bring them into a particular framework. So yeah, thank you for, for, for sharing that. It means a lot to me. And, and actually to show you how much um, this is on my docket, the, the third book in my Dream Yoga series, the second one's coming out in two weeks, yay! Um, the third one is called, uh, tentatively called, The Lost Temple of Sleep, Integral Dream Yoga and the Path of Awakening. And so I, what I do in that book is I, I, in fact, take an integral approach. This kind of conjoins to what I was saying earlier. Um, what I, the, the central thesis of this book is that if, in fact, lucidity is the natural state, like we talked about, you know, half an hour ago, if that outrageous proclamation is in fact the case, which it is, how did we get so non-lucid? How did we lose our way so deeply? And so what I do then is I use an integral approach to suss that out. What are the ph phenomenological, scientific, biological, cultural factors that come into play to co-conspire to create this, this, this thing we call non-lucidity, whether it's day or night? And so I appreciate the encouragement. I mean, uh, Ken is a dear friend of mine. I love him to death. He's done an, an enormous contribution, in my opinion. And I am a huge fan of integral theory just because it makes so much bloody sense. You know, I mean, as you know, I mean, it's not easy. It's, it's, it's labyrinthian, it's complex, but it has so much raw explanatory power that I, I bow to its tenets. And uh, thank you for sharing that. It just encourages me to kind of keep going along this path. So thank you guys, appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining me. All right, and next will be Rana. All right, Rana, you have the audio. Yeah. Um, I'm new to this. Okay. I, I'm not new to Dharma. Okay. Maybe I really, it's possible that it's too advanced for me because I hear more you're talking about fruition aspect. Uh-huh. And I was listening desperately to Chogyam Trumpa's talk. <laughs> right. There's a talk about disappointment. And that talk actually saves me a few times from suicide. Oh, wow. It's so necessary to feel this disappointment. Mm -hmm. But we just need that, you know. And right now, because of what, what the humanity is going through, this disappointment is so important yeah. to talk about and also uh, the grain of sadness yeah. right. that we cannot get rid of ego but the ego gets into that state of grain of sadness which is right. But you said, I've heard, you said that we, we, you know, it's possible to get rid of the ego. So that- Oh, well, actually, actually, I'm going to contest you there very gently, if I might, because I, ne I never say that. And, I, and it's a really good point. So I'm going to come back to that. I don't want to interrupt your chain of thought, because you're bringing in some really good points I want to talk about. But I also want to be clear that I never said that. Um, and, and you'll see why in a second, okay? 
Well, if you haven't said it, then I've heard it. it then yes, I exactly. Yeah, <laughs> you've 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 shenwonged me. <laughs> no, here's here's what I mean by this, uh, Rona, is that um, you can't get rid of ego because ego doesn't exist. It's like, and in fact, this is this is a really important point. Um, ego in Pema Chodron, I think Pema Chodron says it this way. Ego is just a funny way of looking at things. Um, Almas puts it, ego is just an arrested form of development. Ego is just one particular bandwidth of relationship to self and other. And ego has its place. I mean, if, if we had, didn't have egoic um, kind of dimensions that are designed to protect form, I always say this, we wouldn't be here contemplating the nature of ego. So ego, this thing, quote unquote, that we call ego, is actually quite necessary. The problem is, because it is an arrested form of development, it tends to colonize, dominate, and dismiss everything. And then that's where the problems come from. And so the take-home point here, two things. One is, you can't get rid of ego. Um, in fact, trying to do so reifies it. Trying to get rid of the ego is setting up a wrestling match with an illusion. It just paradoxically makes it stronger. So what you do is you simply see through it. You transcend and include it, uh, a term that Hegel used that Ken Wilber riffs on a lot. It's a really important term. You transcend but include the ego. So it's like growing, you know, ego's like growing, you know, uh, let's say ego's age, well, seven, former operational thinking. Ego, uh, let's say just metaphorically, ego is age seven. Well, when you grow to age eight, you don't kill age seven you transcend but include age seven. And so therefore what this means, because ego is just a form of development, we're gonna go, we're gonna develop beyond it. And that's where the transcend but include comes, right? So you transcend it because the view is so much better, is better, you know, to be more grown up and more adult than to be more kind of retarded. But you always have access to it if you need it. You always can stoop down to that level to communicate with others. And so that's really important because then that means, you know, you, you can actually make friends with your ego and say, thank you so much for getting me to this point of human evolution. You are, you've been such a tremendous help. But now I'm going to just leave you here as I continue on my journey. And then when you need to come back to egoic dimensions to communicate with others, to relate to others, you have access to it but you're no longer exclusively identified with it. See, that's what it is. Ego is exclusive identification with form. So that's super important. You don't want to get rid of the ego because you can't. There is no such thing as an ego. You want to just simply see through it, see through its facade and realize that it has a very applicable pay, a place in the role of human development. And this is why integral theory, again, comes into play. Find that place and keep it there. So it doesn't you know, colonize and dominate all other modes of development, which of course it does, because that's just ego's MO. The second thing you said, I want to talk a little bit about uh, disappointment. If I'm understanding what you're saying, that's also really important because on a very real level, and again, maybe I'm not entirely sure this is where you're going with that track, but fundamentally, everything is going to disappoint you. Everything but the Dharma will let you down because everything but the Dharma is built on a house of cards. It's built on sand. And so fundamentally, everything will disappoint. And um, that's also really important to understand because then what it does is it 
helps you shift your investment strategies and your portfolio. So you're no longer investing in egoic enterprises, in the egoic economy, right? Pull your investments from that. That market is going to crash because it's built on sand. And so, you know, the vast majority of the world, because they don't know there's another narrative, they don't realize there's an alternative storyline, they just put all their eggs in, in, the, in the materialistic um, egoic basket. That is always going to crumble because it's not true. Um, and so disappointment on one level is actually really healthy. It, it's the essence of renunciation. It's the, it's the essence of revulsion in the best sense where you realize, whoa, you know, I, I am definitely investing my life, my everything into the wrong portfolio. And the sooner you catch on to that, the sooner you're going to save yourself from this big crash because um, anything built on sand like that is going to crumble. So if that, is that what you're meaning when you talk about disappointment or was there another trajectory there? Yes, yes. Yeah. And also I want to say that one of the tricks that ego constantly doing is pulling us away from how we feel. This feeling is so important and it's so, you know, uh, because perhaps of my ego, because I'm not intellectual person, I'm more, you know, heart feeling person. I feel like that, where does it take us? <laughs> well, say the last part again, Ron. Where, where, where does that take, say just more. Where this conceptual uh, interaction will take us. Fundamentally, it's not going to take you very far. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why, right, in both Buddhist and in, in basic Indian, um, and I even, I even got a reference from, uh, from uh, somebody, somebody uh, some data about e even the, the Christian fathers, which I didn't realize, had the same similar tenets. The, the, great, the great difference between what we're doing here and just, you know, mere philosophy and, and the um, uh, sophistry and the like, is we're working through this, this, this kind of three-part progression of incorporation. Remember? Hearing, contemplating, meditating. That has to be mentioned here. Where concepts, they are important on one level, but they're just maps. Um, concepts if alone fundamentally will not get you too far. But what they may do is inspire you to contemplate, to become more intuitive, to pay attention to your feelings, to, you know, to kind of, the, this, this hearing, contemplating, meditating thing, I like to think of it as a purification and filtration system, where the more you drop down out of your head and into your body, that's where the truth is. Literally, Dharmakaya, it's in your body. The more you drop down, the more you filter and purify the concepts. You know, contemplating is more pure than thinking, um, conceptualizing. Meditation is even more pure than contemplating. And so fundamentally through this, this downward trajectory into the center of yourself, into your body, you purify, filter out all these unnecessary, fundamentally unnecessary steps and, and uh, uh, defilements. But then here's the kicker. Then you don't just stay down there, then you can come back up voluntarily and actually re-inhabit your con concepts, re-inhabit the thinking mind. It's like a voluntary form of reincarnation. You come back into those forms, but now you see they're pure. Why? Because they're no longer so conceptual. 
even concept can get non-conceptual if it's purified from these deeper spaces. So basically, it's just a, it's just a, a way for you, for me to say, um, to be supportive of your trajectory, of your intuitions, your feelings. But also the near enemy of that is don't get lost in your feelings. Um, even that, there's a difference between feeling and emotionality. You know, um, stay literally with the feelings in your body that are even deeper than your emotionality, because they're already one step removed from that. So you just want to go down, down, and in, in as far as you possibly can to um, that which subsends both concept and feeling as we know it. Okay? Thank you. I, I had a dream of Chogyam Trumpa, and I don't, I don't know, should I say it or not? It's not a long dream, but I don't want to take opportunity from other people. I mean... Yeah, maybe just for the purposes of time. Thank you for that sensitivity. Just for the purposes of time, my dear, is it okay if, if we actually just open it up to others? Yes. I'd love to hear it, but I want to be sensitive to all the people that are in the queue. I appreciate okay? that. Thank yeah, you. Thank you so much. Nice to see you. All right. And next will be Rebecca. Hello. Hi. Um. I have a quick question, but then something deeper to share and, okay. and invite feedback. My quick question is, um, do Buddhist masters, uh, do, would they have anything to say about keeping a dear one's ashes in the house? Um, advisable, inadvisable, doesn't matter. Uh, well, I'm not a Buddhist master, but I can tell you what I think. <laughs> Well, have you, your take on it, or have you heard anybody speak on this? <laughs> um, not overtly about this, but I mean, here's, here's, I mean, I think you, one, you can trust your own heart and judgment here. I mean, you know, this, this notion of filial piety, you know that, where we're just paying homage to our ancestors, to our loved mm -hmm. ones and the like. It's a beautiful thing. It's a wondrous thing. It's actually at the essence of what the Buddhist tradition refers to kind of classically as lineage. It's really, really beautiful. And so they would simply say if, if this type of commemoration or whatever inspires you to bring a sense of homage towards the predecessors, towards those who are supportive of you, then, I mean, again, I'm not a Buddhist master, but like, why not? If there's kind of a, you know, an underlying stickiness, graspiness around that, and again, this is an open question, then you may simply want to look at that. But, um, you know, it's like this, this thing I often playfully say that, you know, don't, this tradition tries very hard not to should on people, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, yes. don't should on yourself, don't should on others. And so I have never heard um, a teacher address this, like, specifically, but mm -hmm. I think somewhere in there you could find something that would probably work for you. Sure, that, that all makes perfect sense. Thank you. Um, and then the, the deeper uh, comment or what have you is my mom um, passed, I would say, into glory next week. Um, and um, the day, the, I guess that same day, I, I went to uh, out in nature with my uh, partner and um, just felt all this 
space, um, the, the daughter role has been so huge in the last month. She was in hospice care and I would call and sing to her and share prayers and other things. And we had a marvelous time crying and just being together. Not that much crying actually. Um, uh, and uh, it, it was huge, but there was a lot of doing with it. And perhaps you recall that with your parents at, at the end, that there's a lot of roles you take on or, you know, uh, various things that are involved with that. And all of a sudden, that role of all that doing to support, etc., just vanished. Um, and there's this huge space, and I'm, a, I'm very aware, aware of Bardo here in, in my life. And you know, as I'm just gazing out um, at this beautiful place I'm at, it just, it was sort of like life play me, let me be your flute. Um, and it was a, it was a huge, a huge experience and, you know, totally unexpected, just being open to the moment. Um, and I wanted to ask you a question, um, but if you have any comments or anything before I ask the, uh, the question. I mean, I can only say good for you and how beautiful is that? It's like her parting gift, right? You know, this kind of openness to that dimension. So I don't, I, you know, I don't have a lot of comment around things of such beauty and elegance. It's almost best to leave that like artwork and untouched without commentary and just celebrate it for what it was. I mean, it's just fantastic. So not, not too much to say on that. I would just simply say celebrate that. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, to contrast with that, life play me as your flute, our culture has so many stories about death and about, and conditioning has so many stories, um, such as she's gone. And of course, we can, we can miss somebody and have tears and all kinds of things come up. But do you have any advice on staying out of narratives that might draw us down um, other than to just stay okay right now you know what thought might come in or what what sticky feeling of that that maybe started authentic and then turns into something more um, mopey or what have you do, right. do you have any comments on on navigating the next um, months or moments or what sure. have you? Yeah, maybe I can say something there. I mean, one is, I mean, first of all, just the fact that you asked that question and can identify with it is actually most of the so-called antidote, that those narratives will come up, you know, those storylines will con continue to arise for a while until they, like everything else, are exhausted. And so, um, <clears throat> first of all, don't try to stop them. Um, let them come, but then let them go. Um, put a welcome mat on your mind, but an exit sign as well, so that so that you still, that particular whatever, narrative storyline comes your way. Um, acknowledge it, but you know, like you mentioned, you don't need to get sticky with it. You don't, on one level, you don't need to um, indulge it. You can simply pay attention to it and, um, you know, just don't, don't buy into that narrative because fundamentally what happens with these things, the way I work with these, is I use them as somewhat heightened, charged ways to look at the way that I'm getting sucked into narratives all the time, regardless. This is just a, a storyline that's a little bit more compelling, that's a little bit more kind of sticky and seductive. And so you can really turn it into a practice um, by not getting rid of it, allowing it to come, being open enough to accommodate it. But, you know, feel it, uh, but don't feed it. Uh, allow yourself to experience it, but don't give it a place to land, see? So that, that it, you know, it, then you don't proliferate. There's that 
really big, important term. I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Um, um, propancha, remember? The proliferation yes. thing? So just don't, don't proliferate with it. That's usually what ego does. It just runs with these storylines. And so catch yourself with that, that um, kind of hook. What Pema talked about is Shempa. You know, you'll notice yourself getting hooked yes. and drawn in and then sucked away. That's also, parenthetically, that's also a moment of non-lucidity. And so just wake up to that and, and say, oh, there it is again. And then just don't go there. Um, hit the mute button on your mind, so to speak, without, <laughs> without stopping it. See? Yes. Like that? Oh, and the other perfect. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say something else. I love what you said about, you know, being in nature and having nature play you like a flute. That's a really interesting, beautiful statement because, you know, very often, kind of in a larger cosmological way, we often talk about, oh, what should I do with my life? You know, blah, blah, blah. I think it's much more important to, to really ask something along these lines, which is what does life want to do with me? Um, and, and somehow, you know, open surrender to that because fundamentally <clears throat> life does, so to speak, if we don't get too anthropomorphic and anthropocentric, life in fact does want to do something through you. And so use that feeling that you felt as a kind of transmission quality and use that to actually perhaps sensitize yourself to how your, not just that experience, but your entire life can now act in this way as a kind of symbolic teacher, symbolic guru to help you um, just maybe get in, in more uh, direct, honest, accurate tune with what, you know, um, your life might be all about. So just an invitation to explore that. Oh, yes, this is perfect. And I love that you ended it with, um, you know, help, help us be in, um, in a more accurate tune with life. I really like that metaphor. So thank you. This was all um, very meaningful. Welcome. Thanks for the offering. I appreciate it. Cool. Thanks. Okay. We got a few more minutes. Great. Uh, next will be Andrew, followed by Glenn. Hey, Andrew. You guys hey, How are you? I'm well. I'm well. So I just want, I'm, I'm looking more for validation from your experience because okay. lately I've been having pretty vivid dreams. And, you know, it's probably the past 10 years, just been a vivid dreamer and I've been getting into lucid dreaming and becoming more conscious with that. Um, I'm learning more about, I took your Bardo course on tricycle. Oh, cool. Uh, fantastic, by the way, everybody should do that. Um, <laughs> so now I became more familiar with the Bardos and I started to really make a lot of associations with my dreams based off of those Bardos. And I'm just very, I'm wondering, you know, you can say, you know, I always chalked it up to, oh, those are just my projections. Yeah, they felt very real, but they're just projections. Now I'm at the point where I wonder if these beings, you know, you kind of alluded before with the other question, like, I wonder, are we actually interacting with autonomous beings? And uh, I'll, I'll tell you that I, I've witnessed like beings that are just, you know, in human form, which is also interesting. They speak English sometimes to me. I can communicate to them. Um, at first they were like, uh, they had the... The, the affect of like they're surprised I was there so it's almost like they were surprised I was there um, they also said my death was premature um, I would ask them things like what what like what are you doing here and why are you here they would say well you can do whatever you want here like just weird stuff I would I would witness these things I, I witnessed people with just insane rage people who had like that look in your eyes and it was like fearful and anything so that would happen 
are you lucid yeah. during all this? Are you lucid during all this? Or this is I a would say situation? one. No, I am probably. I'm just I'm in the moment, so I'm I'm very conscious, like it's happening. But once I get lucid, this is the interesting thing. So once I would get lucid, I would say. Um, it would be a projection of my dad or be a projection of some family member. I would say, you're not my sister at all. And then it will start to fade. Like my, the vision will start to blur as if they're kind of blinding me. Um, and that's a very common thing. So I'd wake up that to that. I've also grabbed people. Um, I would, I would uh, be, there would be animals around and I would get bitten by a snake. I would wake up and then feel the pain of that. Mm -hmm once I'm awake. So those are just, those are just examples. And I just wanted to know, like, hmm, I was also questioning, am I getting a little schizo when I'm dreaming now? Like what's going on with that? And I just want to see if you had uh, any kind of uh, uh, similarities to my experience. That's all. Oh yeah, for sure. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. what you're sharing is not, not, not that unusual. I mean, on one level, it's like really cool, you know, because you're right. There's so many things to say here. What, you know, um, uh, like let's let's go let's go right to the deepest end of it and then we can backpedal a little bit um so like on the deepest end of this that um where this stuff can fundamentally take you is that by reifying or making like when you have dreams that are super clear super real like you know whether they're they're even non-lucid dreams or in particular you know lucid or hyper lucid dreams that they're so bloody real one of the byproducts of those types of experiences that's that's really important and, and profoundly transformative is that by reifying a state like that, you de-reify this state. And and that's that may be even larger scope than what you're asking, but I want to throw that into the mix because it's important. The more you make, I wouldn't say make make real, but the more you see the so-called reality of an alternate state like the dream state the less real this becomes. You fundamentally get to the point where you see the democratic nature of both states. They're, they're not different. So that's the sidebar thing. The, the first thing about projection and, auto, and um, autonomous beings and the like, you know, again, that's a tricky one to answer definitively. On one level, nothing is autonomous. I think when you're really talking about, you know, something seemingly separate from you, that's a really, that's an, still remains an open question for me. Um, and I'm again, I'm okay with that. I sometimes feel more comfortable thinking that, you know, last night when I had the dream about the Karmapa, that in fact, that was the Karmapa in my dream. And so if that imbues that particular experience with more power, then I will capitulate to that interpretation. There are other times when I will feel like, you know, maybe that was a manifestation of the Karmapa within me. And then I'll take refuge in that. And, and somehow between those two, um, I'm okay with, with dancing between that kind of ambiguity. I don't have a problem with that. Um, and so the, I'm not, again, maybe directing a little bit more, Andrew, in terms of where you want to go with this, because there's, there's just a lot of different places that we can run with this one. Right. It's just, that's all I really wanted to hear, right? It's just, it's almost, I just want other people to see if they have that similar experience, because oh, totally. there are moments where like even you get to a point where you become hyper lucid and now realize that, you know, I've already been past the, you know, you know, you, you fly, you hover, you run really fast right. and start to visualize you're in a mountain range. I got past that, well, not past it, still a very uh, great experience, but I get to the point now I'm starting to meditate in that state. Yeah. And I realize you can actually, I can actually see like my thoughts forming and like, it's just a continuous Beautiful. formation 
Beautiful. And then you got, and then I got to the point where you do see a light and you just that you just meditate on the light and I, I've seen just bright white lights and that was a pretty cool experience and I would wake up. So I've seen like the it seemed like I've seen the whole span of it. Um it's just yeah, I don't really there's I just wanted to share. No, I think it's great. Uh, one, one, one thing that does help with what you just said is that, in fact, one thing that you can start to do is relate more and more to both states as being um, uh, equal in terms of status. In other words, just like you're saying, bring now your meditative qualities of mind to the dream arena and realize, realize that what you're experiencing is actually, it, it is a level of uh, kind of uh, maturation and proficiency in the dream world, you know, when you start to, when the dreams just become more real, more lifelike, that's really pretty darn awesome in my opinion. Um, and this is why I, I, I confer equal status to the experiences I have in my dreams, unless they're completely, I say this with one asterisk, unless they're completely like neurological noise discharge dreams. Some dreams are just utterly just kind of neurological noise. Right. But others aren't, you know, others really confer um, all kinds of possibilities for transformation and the like. And, and for me, uh, because I've been doing this for so long, I, I, I give equal status, equal footing to my dream experiences as I do my day experiences. I really do. And, this, and it's also partly that level of allegiance and honoring of the dream state that somehow confers that state with even more power in a good way. Where it's like, it's almost like, because I believe in this level of um, conversation or whatever you want to call it, or communication, that level of belief actually confers um, a, a kind of supportive status to the dream. Where then it becomes, it's like, okay, this guy really is into this. This guy really wants to converse, whatever, whatever metaphor you want to use. And therefore, that whole dream world just gets bigger and richer all the time. And honestly, no kidding, it, it, just, it just appears less and less different from this. Right. This, this, is, this is a whole lot more dreamlike because of that. That's the point. That's the fundamental point. And then, because basically what's going on, I mean, when you're in a dream state, what do you, what's going on there? It's just your mind. It's right. your mind. Right, exactly. Out here, it's just your mind mixed with a few other minds. <laughs> Sometime in the night, there's probably other minds mixed in there as well. But it's basically wherever you go, there you are. It's your mind in there. And so the key is like what you're saying at the end is use that uh, venue as a way to work with your mind, to meditate, right. to explore, right. to learn. And then you'll take those insights back in here. And then, yeah, I mean, lo and behold, you know, all of a sudden now you're, you're a real dream yogi because now you're using that expression of your mind to its fullest status. And that's huge. I mean, that's really huge. Right. So, no, I appreciate that, Andy. Yeah. Thank you. And I'll yeah, good for you. I mean, to you basically, I, yeah, basically, I just say carry on. You're doing some good stuff, man. <laughs> Love it. Cool. Thanks. All right, uh, next up, uh, we'll give the audio to Glenn. Uh, can you hear me? Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Um, Andrew, I have uh, uh, a question for you about uh, dreaming. Um, okay. So I, I recall my dreams in little chunks during the night because yeah. waking up a lot. And so some chunks are unlucid, some are lucid. Mm -hmm. So last night, um, and actually over the last couple of weeks, I've, so my aspiration is to be, uh, is to break dream rules, uh, fly around. And my aspiration last night was to come to understand the nature of dream rules. Well, one of the conceptions I've had over the last couple of months of doing this is that if I have dreams that have 
a lot of my own daytime feelings about people around me, I don't get lucid. And that's happened last night. There was a whole chunk where it was a relationship with me to a buddy of mine. And then I wake up, go to the bathroom, go back to sleep. And I had this lucid thing, which was a continuation of the dream, but there, were, there was nobody that I had. They were all strangers. Uh-huh. I was able to move in a way that was, and, and, and uh, sort of take charge or something, but move in a way that, that could move me. So then I'm wondering, is this my ego trying to get rid of all my friends or I'm not dealing with this kind of stuff? <laughs> You know, in my relationship to dreams in the past has been, you know, as psychological therapy dreams. Right. So comments here if there's something that comes to mind. Well, I'm curious. First of all, do you tend to have the, the um, kind of recollection of the previous day's events and that sort of thing? Do those tend to occur early, like the earliest part of the night? In other words, those are what you're happening? No. When, they, when, when, when they, occur, kind of... uh, they occur in the last three to four hours. Okay. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I don't have a ton to say about this. Nothing comes like explosively into my mind in terms of like what is trying to actually be transmitted here. Um, it could be, and again, I'm just shooting from the hip here. It could be somewhat connected to the, what we were talking about at the outset is that somehow there's, um, you know, some kind of transference of power thing going on with the first part when you're dealing with uh, with active recollections of living friends and that kind of thing. But um, unless you can say a little bit more about that, Glenn, there, there isn't anything that immediately comes to mind to some type of breakthrough thing. I'm First of all, I have to say, even though I'm a huge fan of dream interpretation and that sort of thing, it has a tremendous place in the spectrum of the nocturnal practices. I am extremely reluctant, hesitant to step in as a kind of dream interpreter, um, you know, telling people that this is what is going on. There are um, venues. Oh, in fact, hey, look at this. I got it right here. I just finished reading this. The Tibetan Art of Dream Analysis. I'm going to interview this guy on my website. It's one of the most, his name is Dr. Nita Tenetsang. Google it. The Tibetan Art of Dream Analysis. It's written by a Tibetan physician, and it is, it is one of the most interesting original books from a Tibetan inner yogic point of view about dream analysis. Um, and I have to say, even though I found it tremendously interesting, um, I don't spend a lot of time with that so much anymore. Um, to me, I'm more interested. It's a little bit like the analogy I work with it, Glenn, is it's a little bit like the difference between therapy and life and meditation and life. When you're engaging in meditation, you're not interested in dream content. It doesn't matter what happens. Uh, I should say, when you're, when you're in meditation, you're not interested in thought content. It doesn't matter what happens in your mind. You're more interested in the relationship to that content. And so in exactly the same way, the difference between dream interpretation, which again is, I'm not dissing it at all. The difference between dream, dream interpretation and things like dream yoga is dream yoga doesn't care about dream content. Dream yoga will use any content as a way to work with, with these principles of either transformation or self-liberation. And so when it comes to these more interpretive type things, I, I, I can refer you to other texts that work with it. Eugene Genlin's book, um, Let Your Body Interpret Your Dreams is also a really good one. But I personally don't do that a ton. Um, I'm actually more interested in working with transforming dream content 
than actually kind of analyzing cream content. So I can't, I can't say a, a ton more than just that. Mm -hmm. So well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> check out those two books, check this one out. And then the other one by uh, uh, Eugene Genlin, let your body interpret your dreams. Those are, that's probably the best book that I've come across. Um, really sophisticated thinker talking about somatic dream interpretation, but it's kind of not my thing. <laughs> okay, bud. Yeah. All right. Dream on. Okay. Maybe one more Andy or one or two, if you got one or two. Yeah, there's three hands raised, but uh, next up will be Norbu. Hi, Andrew. Hi. Hi. Um, I got a, a question, and uh, I'd like to, if I may, throw a quote at you and, uh, and see Oh, what you love mean. it. Throw as many I'll quotes start, at me as you like. I'll start with the question. Um, okay. I've been doing experiments. When I, when I lucid dream, uh, I try and communicate with the characters in my dream and I tell them, this is a dream, you are part of my dream. <laughs> cool. Now, what always happens is that they can't hear me. They do not respond, however loud I shout. Um, I, I don't know what that's all about. Right. Uh, you know, it's just an experiment I thought I'd like to try and I haven't really actually come to any <laughs> conclusion on that. Yes. Well, I mean, it could be that, you know, um, there's a conflict of interest going on, or it could be that this could be, again, symbolic representative of some type of um, miscommunication between dimensions of your own mind. I, I have to share, I have to share the story, though. In fact, uh, Dr. Nita shares this story, so it, it's completely applicable. So he's talking about, he's talking, he shared this, uh, I took a dream yoga thing with him, and he's talking about this nightmare he had. He had, he had a, a kind of a recurrent nightmare where this this character just kept chasing him hmm. and and he kept running and and one day um he said i'm, gonna, I'm just going to stop running and so he, one day he turned around stopped and and the dream character kind of ran up right up against him and and dr nita in his dream form says what are you doing in my dream what do you <laughs> want and the dream character says i don't know it's your dream <laughs> That's brilliant. I love that. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I got to share a personal story around this. I think I might have shared this one before because I do the sort of same, same um, thing that you're doing, my friend, as well. And so I, I had a somewhat similar story, um, which again, when you, when you look at dreams as the moniker, the moniker being the measure of the path, this one was, was simultaneously revelatory and very humorous. And so, and so, so I'm in this, I'm in, I'm like on some seaport thing um, in the 1800s and I'm going down a series of steps. That's always interesting, you know, descent into the unconscious mind. Mm -hmm. So I'm wandering down these series of steps down this seaport into this kind of really seedy kind of tavern with all these kind of rough and ready redneck sea, you know, weathered type of characters drinking their ale and whatnot. And so I'm pretty lucid. And so I come up to this table where there's like a handful of these gnarly dudes. And, and I go, what are you guys doing here? And, and one guy just picks up his mug of beer and he goes, I mate, where are your unconscious mind? <laughs> oh, 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 man. So, yeah, I, was, I, I actually burst out laughing in my lucid dream. It woke me up. And then it also was a little bit humbling because you know here I am thinking that I'm a real reasonably evolved spiritual human being. And I still have the seedy unconscious characters <laughs> in my dream. It was brilliant. It was just absolutely brilliant. 
Yeah. So anyway, so yeah. <laughs> and the, the quote I just wanted to throw at you, you might have come across this before, um, but it's always intrigued me. And it goes, I am divided for love's sake, for the chance of union. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Who, 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 I, who, I hesitate to say it was Alistair Crowley. Oh, no kidding. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Not bad for him. That's, wow. uh, that's from what he called the book of the law. And yeah. I thought that really interesting, that, that, that quote. Say it one more time. Say it, say it one more time. I am divided for love's sake, for the chance of union. Yeah. 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 So what does that land with you? What do you think of it? I am. I think it's brilliant. And I can't say why, but it sort of explains that bifurcation for the sake. I mean, without, without, without the bifurcation, without the problems or without samsara, there can be no nirvana um, without, I don't know, without, yeah, uh, it's, it's, it, it's sort of like sort of sums up the whole process of enlightenment and how joyful it is. And the whole purpose of, um, not being enlightened is the joy uh, of, of enlightenment. <laughs> I don't know. I, yeah, it's something like that. Words, yeah. You know, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Something like that. I, I would agree with something like that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing yeah. that, my friend. Appreciate it. Good always, to see you. I've always kept that, that quote with me because I think it's brilliant. Yeah. It's interesting. The source. I mean, I wouldn't have expected yeah. it coming up from an occultist like that, but that's pretty cool. Thanks for sharing it. He comes up with some pretty, deep stuff and, and a load of garbage too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have to centrifuge it out. So yeah. Very good, my friend. Thank you. Take care. See you. Okay. Maybe one or two more. Great. Uh, next will be Judith. Hello. Can you hear me? Uh, yes. Can you hear me? Oh, great. Um, gosh, I mean, I'm just bowled over by all these questions because they just seem to me really spiritually mature. And I, I had a thought, oh my gosh, thank God I have a teacher because I really need one. But my question is, um, how important is that experience of bliss, um, to have that experience of bliss? Is it, is it is it really important um, for um, you know to, to for aware to, to get to real awareness? How important is that? No, no, it's not. Um, and really, the, the important point here is that the bliss. And this actually is, I think, pretty important. The bliss, what what makes it blissful? The bliss is brought about only in contrast to the contraction prior to the bliss. So in other words, the ecstasy is directly proportional to the preceding agony. <laughs> and so if you're really contracted, when you open, it's experienced as tremendous bliss, almost like or, a kind of orgasmic type of release. Um, but fundamentally, the nature of things, this is a great way to close today's session because it, it, it'll dovetail us back to the very beginning. Fundamentally, the nature of things, nature of mind, reality, is unbelievably ordinary, extraordinary. And, and so therefore, you know, bliss like anything else has its place, um, but we certainly shouldn't be looking for bliss. Um, what you fundamentally want to acknowledge is what's called the great bliss. 
And the great bliss is, is finding this kind of basic goodness or equanim, uh, equanimity, a sense of equality to whatever arises. But in terms of your question, Judith, the, the, the bliss does have its place, but a very powerful near enemy of that bliss is somehow thinking that you're not spiritual if you, have, if you don't have that bliss all the time now. And so um, what, as we progress along the path, and we, we progressively decontract, deatomatize, open, open. Fundamentally, we get to the point where the, the final ultimate opening and release is, is really the ultimate, literally the ultimate letdown. And so this ties in beautifully to the earlier statement about disappointment. Um, Suzuki Roshi very famously, very beautifully said, and this is a very powerful statement. He said, upon his awakening, he said, he said enlightenment was my biggest disappointment. Why? Because he was already so open. He was already, he spent his whole career, this is my interpretation, he was already so open, so accommodated, so uncontracted, that when he finally slid into the final stable, stabilization of that, it was just nothing, it was simply extraordinary. And that's why in, in some wisdom traditions, it's literally called ordinary mind. So, you know, it's important to have this because as I often playfully say, the ultimate state is, is not Hollywood. It's more like Oklahoma. <laughs> Don't mean to offend anybody in Oklahoma, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. If, you're, if you're driving through Oklahoma and you're waiting to get to Las Vegas or Hollywood, you're looking for the wrong thing. You know, the, look for the ordinariness, look for the simplicity, look for the openness right here, right now. So bliss has its place, but if you just look for that bliss, you'll just get blissed out. Fundamentally, it's extremely ordinary. That's what's important. Okay. Andrew, thank you so much. I always feel like after I've been in one of your sessions, I feel like I'm standing on the end of edge of a cliff and there are all these winds coming towards me and I don't know where to go. There's just so much, but it's, it's just fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, dear. It's nice to see you again. Yeah. Ciao, okay. stay healthy. Okay, yeah. Andy, are we, are we done or do we have one last one? No, nope, um, we're all set. Yay, everybody. Thanks for joining me. Same place, same time next week. Thanks for everybody for joining and uh, wash your hands, keep your heart open and let's get through this together. It's great fun for me on my end. Nice to see everybody. Bye.